Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson today. Members of the U.S. House are preparing to return to Washington from their summer recess next week. There are some key issues on the table for Congress, including infrastructure, a $3.5 trillion spending bill, and voting rights. And images this week from chaos at the Kabul airport means Afghanistan and refugee resettlement are in the spotlight as well. Here to talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C. is Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township representing Michigan's 5th District. Kildee serves as Chief Deputy Whip of the House Democratic Caucus. Congressman Kildee, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me back. So first of all, before we talk about anything else, I I just wanted to extend my condolences to you uh, for the loss of former Congressman Paul Mitchell, who died this week at age 64 after a battle with cancer. Your districts, of course, neighbored each other when he was serving in Congress. And uh, as you said in a statement this week, you worked on some issues together as well. Um, Talk about your relationship with uh, Rep. Mitchell and uh, what you hope people will remember most about his uh, life and career. Well, it is a loss. I mean, uh, I was disappointed when Paul decided to leave the Congress. Um, you know, obviously he and I came, come from different parties and it differed on a lot of issues. Um, but we became friends over the years. Um, he was just a really engaging guy. He would find me over on the, on the floor of the house just to engage in conversation. Um, and he was a person that really was true to himself. Um, I mean, let's, let's face it, it was a tough decision that he made, even though he was leaving Congress. Uh, but in the wake of everything that took place regarding uh, Mr. Trump and you know, the insurrection and everything, you know, Paul decided that he could no longer align himself with, uh, with the Republican Party. And, you know, I don't mean to be partisan about it. I only say that to say that Paul was not a person that thought about party first. He thought about country first and was willing to act on it, even though he knew that he was going to get a lot of blowback. So that kind of integrity is something we ought to honor. And I think if there is a particular legacy that Paul leaves, that's it right there. Mm. We actually uh, worked in the same building in Lansing uh, before he was in Congress, and I remember he would stop by every once in a while. We had lots of neighbors in that building, but uh, he was one of the few that would come by and say hi every once in a while, and uh, usually was about to complain about something on the radio that he heard, but, uh, you know, we always had great conversations, and he was always so cordial, so thoughtful, um, and it is a, it's a big loss here in Michigan. And, uh, yeah, I had, I had the same experience. Paul's office was near mine. And once in a while, one of my staff would come in and say, Congressman Mitchell's here. He wants to just stop in. <laughs> so that was the kind of guy he was. Exactly. We, we, we will miss him. So, of course, uh, to to get back to the news, uh, we've we've been watching horrific images all week out of Afghanistan. Uh, most Americans... According to public opinion polling at this point, they want this conflict to end. But I think many Americans are asking whether this is what the end of this conflict had to look like. Um, I'm curious what questions you have at this point uh, that you want answered about the way that the withdrawal was handled, if any. Well, first of all, you know, I support the president's decision to withdraw. And so did President Trump, for that matter. He signed a peace agreement with the Taliban. Uh, So the expectation was. Uh, that the U.S. was not making progress. It was time for us to end our occupation in Afghanistan. 
and that the Taliban was the strongest force and would likely take control of the country. It happened faster than many thought. And I think the questions that the administration will have to answer is how well prepared were we for this? Was this a problem with intelligence? Was it a problem with planning? Or was it the inevitable end to a 20-year occupation that was never going to end well? Um, you know, I believe that it was the right choice, but it matters how we do things. And I'm glad now that the situation seems to be more stable, that the airport is secure, and that we're able to get people out. About, I think, 1,300 yesterday, we were able to get out. So, you know, that's the that's the, the concern I have is that we stay focused on the task, and that is to get our American personnel out of there and those Afghan nationals who stood with us, our interpreters, those others that supported our efforts. We need to make sure that we protect them from retribution from the Taliban by getting them here and giving them refugee status. On that subject, well, I think one of the issues that has been on full display in all of this is how we treat refugees, you know, even in a bigger sense. But, you know, people who fear for their lives and the lives of their children are stuck in a bureaucratic nightmare right now in Afghanistan. I want to talk a little bit about this specific situation and what can be done uh, and what should be done to help those folks, uh, many of whom worked for and sacrificed for the U.S. and its mission in Afghanistan, as you said. What what can be done in this situation for them? Well, I think we just need to make sure that the Defense Department, the State Department, anyone who has a, a part of the decision-making process in terms of processing refugees move as efficiently and quickly as possible, knowing that the goal is to protect that population, to make sure they're safe, to get them out of Afghanistan, get them on American soil. And if there are further issues that need to be worked out in a, you know, sort of in the normal bureaucracy of processing, let's do that in the safety of American soil, or at least not in Afghanistan, in a place that is more under our control. Uh, so I think my suggestion or advice to the administration to the extent that they want to take it is let's get these folks out and then we can deal with some of the processing questions outside of harm's way. Yeah. And and when it comes to the, sort of the bigger sense of this, this topic, uh, let's talk about what it tells us more generally about refugee resettlement processes in the United States. I mean, should it be so bureaucratic and frustrating for people who are facing the most difficult situations of their entire lives? I mean, should we make the process simpler and more streamlined for all refugees, or do you believe that might open up some security concerns? Well, obviously we have to make sure that we're protecting ourselves from any security threats and anyone who might use refugee status you know, for purposes other than what it's intended. But I, just like any process, any governmental process, it can be improved, it can be streamlined, it can be made more efficient, and I would hope that that would be the focus. I do think there's a broader issue about the U.S. and refugees in general. And I just look back to uh, this, the situation in Syria when Bashir al-Assad was bombing his own citizens and Syrians were fleeing Syria into Turkey, into Lebanon, into other places, I think the U.S. had an obligation to do more in that circumstance. Other countries seem to do more to support 
refugees than the U.S. has done, at least in the recent uh, history of the U.S. This is an example of why it's so important that we embrace these refugees. In this particular case, these are not only people who are fleeing a murderous mob. Uh, the Taliban obviously don't respect the rights of individuals, don't respect the rights of women and children in particular. But there are also people who stood with the United States. And this is probably the one critical piece. The refugees that we need to embrace are those Afghan nationals who stood with the U.S., who were the interpreters, were the eyes on the ground for us. And because of that, are now in grave danger. We need to embrace them and do everything we can to protect them. And in doing so, send a message that says, when you stand with the United States, the United States will back you. Even if the situation on the ground has deteriorated to the point that it has, there are some individuals who have warranted U.S. support, and we have to make sure we follow through on this. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm talking with Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township who represents Michigan's 5th Congressional District. He is also Chief Deputy Whip of the House Democratic Caucus. We are talking about uh, what's happening in Afghanistan, how we're treating refugees who are hoping to come here and out of that situation, uh, who fear that their lives are in danger. We're also talking about all the other news coming out of Washington, D.C. right now. And Congressman Kildee, uh, on uh, moving along uh, to another subject here, some members of your party are considering using some of the $3.5 trillion budget bill and the reconciliation process to actually help with refugee resettlement efforts. I'm curious what you think of those plans, uh, maybe what some of the possibilities are there, uh, and how much money you think we should be talking about to address that issue. Yeah, that on the last part, it's difficult for me to gauge right now how much we need until we have a better idea of how many of the refugees are going to be resettled, what their current situation is. I mean, I think, for example, in the case of those refugees who are uh, who have been our interpreters, which, you know, very often that's what we're talking about here. These are folks who are English proficient. And, you know, that helps, obviously, in terms of their ability to assimilate. But there will be immediate needs in terms of housing, health, you know, the basics of survival. And we, and we need to make sure that we're providing that. So I, I do agree that whether it's the budget resolution or some other spending bill, we need to make sure that we commit the resources to take care of those people to the extent that they need our assistance in making a decision about where they ultimately want to live their lives. And if it happens to be in the United States, to provide them with assistance until they get their feet on the ground. Uh, uh, Talking more about that $3.5 trillion budget bill and uh, the reconciliation process, I'm curious, what are some of the other specific elements that you're looking at right now in that that you think are going to have the most impact here in Michigan and in your district? Well, I think the most important aspects of it are are the pieces that invest in our human capital. I'll give give an example. Uh, The child tax credit the refundable child tax credit, which has lifted literally half of the children who live in poverty in this country out of that circumstance. Um, You know, family medical leave, which will will come with a cost. Um, Investment in the future. Well, for example, one of the things I'm working on is 
embracing the electrification of our transportation system, uh, electric vehicles, investing in those aspects of the future that will pay us back with higher productivity and a cleaner planet. Um, this is a big piece of legislation. It includes you know, our regular budget, but also these additional investments that in a perfect world would have fit into the larger infrastructure bill, but because of, uh, of the lack of support for much of it, will now uh, come through this budget process called reconciliation. To me, uh, we learned a lot during the pandemic about the weaknesses in the American economic system. Here's a chance for us to address those weaknesses. And so that when we come out of this pandemic, we literally are coming out better than we were before this thing all started. And that's really the focus of the of the bill. $3.5 trillion uh, sounds to almost any American like a lot of money. Uh, talk about those who are concerned about the price of this. Right now, the, the plan would be to get it through, again, through the reconciliation process so that you do, do not need bipartisan support to get it through. But, of, of course, one of the main uh, criticisms from Republicans is this is just too much money. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, I, I, I sort of I guess I'm old enough now to remember an old television ad that started with the phrase, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. The kind of investments that we're talking about here, I believe, will have a return to the taxpayer. And so, for example, if we lift half of the children who are in poverty out of poverty, we can have greater expectations for the, for the future for these children, less dependency on the government, less dependency uh, on programs that will obviously be required to make sure that we address the poverty that they're living in if we don't lift them from it. That's an example. But there, there are other examples. I think, for example, one of the things we want to put in the reconciliation bill is a stronger investment in water infrastructure. Flint's a really good example. I represent Flint. I'm from Flint. For the cost of maybe 20 or $30 million eight years ago, we could have avoided what will probably be about a billion dollars in costs of failure. And so the focus that I try to bring this conversation back to is the specific elements of what we're trying to do. And if we look at them each individually, we realize that the money we're talking about spending is really a wise investment in the sense that it pays us back with increased productivity, decreased dependence on government, and over the long term, I think, clearly justifies the investment. Congressman Dan Kildee is a Democrat from Flint Township representing Michigan's 5th District. He's joining me here on Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. Congressman Kildee, I want to talk a little bit about the politics of this. Uh, and I'm trying to put it in the context of the infrastructure bill that is also uh, poised possibly to move sometime soon. We we're not sure. At least I am not aware of any specific plans for that yet. How should we contextualize these two bills and the, the politics of them? One, you're talking about moving $3.5 trillion in a Democratic-only move. The other one is seemed to be, at least at first, as or well, still as an attempt at bipartisanship. Um, you know, can you is are we likely to see both of these 
pass, or is this um, is it something that could uh, kind of signal where things are going in terms of Democrats and Republicans being able to work together in Congress? Yeah, I mean, my hope is that we will see both of these pass. I expect that we will. Um, I do think it's it's troubling that we're only able to get bipartisan support around conventional infrastructure um, and not really embrace our future. I mean, if we were to just allow the infrastructure bill to pass without these other investments, essentially what we'll be doing is rebuilding the 20th century infrastructure instead of creating 21st century infrastructure around a 21st century economy. So it does, but it does speak to one of the problems that we see in Washington. And that is that there are some who, who believe that if they can't get everything they want or have it entirely their way, that they won't compromise and be willing, you know, to find common ground. The president really had a focus, and I agree with him, that we should do everything we can in as bipartisan fashion as possible. But that does not mean that when the Democrats control the House and the Senate and the White House, that we shouldn't pursue our goals, even if it means we can't get Republicans in Congress to support them. You know, it won't have bipartisan, that part of it won't have bipartisan support in Congress. It does have bipartisan support across the country. We think about the elements, paid family leave, the child tax credit, investing in, you know, clean energy, investing in electrification of of power, saving the planet from greenhouse gases. Those have bipartisan support, just not in Congress, which has become obviously overly partisan. How likely at this point do you think the reconciliation bill is likely to get through both chambers? Reminder to listeners, that's the $3.5 trillion uh, budget bill that uh, Democrats are looking to go alone on. Uh, if it does get through both of these chambers, do you view it as a turning point uh, for Democrats in terms of exercising their control in Congress after months of criticism for not being more aggressive? Uh, I know there's a two-parter, but uh, let's start with how likely you think it is to pass. I think it's likely that it'll pass. We have an important vote next week. Um, you know, I'll be heading to Washington on Monday for some votes that relate to this procedural step, clearly, but it's really important step so that the committees of jurisdiction, like, for example, I'm on the Ways and Means Committee, big chunk of this will come through our committee, that we can get to work and bring a product back to the House and the Senate uh, sometime later you know, this summer. So there will be a step, and we'll have some indication next week as to you know, what kind of progress we can make. Uh, and at that point in time, then we get into the detail. And, you know, that's obviously more difficult to actually go from the conceptual to the specific. But it also, I think, adds a lot of support because when people begin to look at specifically what's in the legislation and how it would positively impact their lives, that is what grows the political support for this whole effort. And I think that will be the ultimately will be the element that pushes this thing all the way through to the president's desk. Uh, Do you sense that this is a turning point in the attitude of Democrats that, um, look, we're going to we're going to exercise a little more uh, of our power that we have here? I think so. I think, you know, we've had to do that recently. 
we did that with the American Rescue Plan, which is very popular and helped keep the economy going through the most difficult uh, health and economic crisis in our nation's history. And we did it with Democratic votes and the president's signature ourselves. We'll be happy to do that again if we have to. We invite Republican participation, but you know we're not going to fail to do what we think is right because we think we have some sort of conceptual obligation to be bipartisan. The American people gave us these majorities because they wanted us to act, and that's what I think we have to do. Congressman Dan Kildee is a Democrat from Flint Township, representing Michigan's 5th District. Uh, Congressman Kildee, it's always a pleasure to have you here on Detroit Today. Thank you. Anytime. Appreciate it. Okay, coming up on Detroit Today, we will talk more about refugee resettlement, and we'll talk about what it looks like here in Michigan and how people here are working on getting people out of Afghanistan who fear their lives are in danger. That's coming up on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.